However, this was the first time which I saw something which is so weird here that you saw close to 1 billion of outflows on Binance. But at the same time, you saw outflows on Coinbase, on Kraken, which were close to half a million. So I don't know where the liquidity is going. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hello. <laughs> How hey are you? Good. How's it going? I can't complain. They've managed to get us in the same room yet again. <laughs> On a Monday, nonetheless. It's a tremendous task for the, for the people who are doing the, the AV support and the programmatic support for this, <laughs> trying to coordinate all of our schedules and get us in one place at the same time. Um, but it's good to see you guys. You too. It's been a while. I have, it has uh, been a while. I've, I've been on the road a little bit, so I've been listening to what you guys have been talking about. I definitely know. appreciate the banter. What have you been up to? Um, well, I had some industry stuff, but uh, last week I was in Ireland for uh, some meetings that we were having with FCAT. But um, cool thing about going over there is we have uh, we have a lot of exposure to different startups and, uh, and basically an, an, a nationwide uh, program called Blockchain Ireland where they do a lot of work uh, helping the startup community and engaging with different regulators and trying to basically help the ecosystem grow there. Uh, so as FCAT, we're, we actually are pretty active in that spot, um, but it was pretty cool. We had a, a meetup uh, while we were there that was sponsored by Blockchain Ireland and, and FCAT, and it was focused on uh, basically uh, startups in the Web3, and the topics were around tokenization and real-world assets. So. Uh, got to uh, participate in a panel and have a lot of conversations with people, but I got to sort of. Paint. Are we any closer to like tokenizing that Ferrari or that like exotic so painting? Th- there was some discussion. <laughs> it depends on who you're talking to, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. on the point of view. But I think um, I think what's really interesting is to gain the perspectives of people who have a different regulatory environment, where there's a lot more clarity on some of these things, and, and the discussion's a little bit more um, advanced and. You know, they look to folks like myself who are there from the U.S. and they're like, "Oh, well, the U.S. is really hard. Things are things are progressing very slowly." And I was like, "They are, but it, not at the same pace. But it's actually very intentional, and there's a lot of discussion. So, good good back and forth. But I, I sort of have to paint the the physical picture for you guys for a moment. So, um, where we we meet up is is down in the the, the Keys, where uh, all of the shipping from years ago would take place. So goods would be basically brought into the country and stored in these uh, stone vaults, arched vaults beneath the city or you know, sent out. So it used to be whiskey casks and uh, tobacco might flow through there. And here you have like FinTech and Web3 startups having discussions. And it's really kind of a dramatic scene because it's all stone and it's all arched. But uh, what is really kind of funny is the sharp contrast of the energy that people bring and they, they, Blockchain Ireland does this a lot. Uh, the place we met, it's called uh, Dogpatch Labs. 
and they're really an accelerator where they bring a bunch of different communities together. So uh, it's a great place to go and experience um, engagement with people across the spectrums. So we talk to people working on NFTs, people working on mining, uh, real-world asset tokenization, all through down to uh, DeFi-related activity. So pretty, uh, pretty wide cross-section of yeah. people there. Just out of curiosity, when you speak to people in Ireland, do they also talk about regulation as much as we do? Or is that not even in question? Um, it depends on the audience. So in, in, in this case, they actually had a, a regulator who participated in the panel from the Irish Finance Ministry. And um, I think what you see is there's a little bit more of a perspective that uh, you will build it and you're, you're finding the ways to do it in a compliant way. But because the EU has MECA, which is the Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation, and they have a lot more um, clarity as to the path, people know the rules which they're trying to work within. Mm -hmm. And for them, it's, it's really not so much about which regulator is claiming authority uh, versus what are we doing and how do we bring it forward in a regulatory compliant manner. So it's, it's part of the discussion, but it doesn't play as much of a role. What, do you, what was sentiment like? Because I feel like, you know, obviously we've covered at length in this discussion weekly a lot of the negative things that have happened recently. Um, and, you know, obviously we, we've, we've said bear markets are for building, right? Um, and the thing there is people do that quietly in the bear market, right? So I think there's a lot going on. You don't necessarily hear about it. But, yeah, I'm just curious. Like, and we're on the eve of two of the largest crypto gatherings, I think, in the U.S., you know, Consensus and Bitcoin Miami coming up in the next couple of months. So it'll be really interesting to see what the turnout's like, you know, what people are saying. Um, but, you know, anything during your time there? Yeah, I, I tell you that the, the sentiment is very, very positive. So you're literally, in, in this context, we're meeting with, different startups who are telling you about what they're building. Or some startups have been in market for a while and they're telling you how their business has evolved. So when, you, when I think about the, the, the type of discussions we had are all about, we're doing this, can we work together? And it was really about, we've got a solid foundation as a country and um, as actors within this country, how in broader EU, how they can bring things forward so you see a lot of collaborative discussion. Some people are also out there trying to figure out uh, in this bear market, how can they take advantage of that to sort of leapfrog some of the competition or bring things forward that people may not have been thinking about. So yeah. the fact that this particular meetup was focused on tokenization or, or real world assets was highlighting uh, the accessibility of different assets for people that may not typically be able to do it. One person was talking about tokenized real estate and you may live in one part of the world but be able to purchase a, a, an ownership right in another part of the world. Or there was your typical um, real world art, car cases, things like that. But I think what was really interesting is you had some real discussion around financial contracts and things like that where it's not just a physical good, it's actually uh, part of an interest in some transaction. Yeah. Cool. These meetups occurred just about a week after Paris Blockchain Week. Yeah. And many of the people had been over there and they were talking about like their engagement across the continent. So um, you definitely have a very positive vibe coming from the uh, yeah, European that's great. That's great. area. Um, all right. So we have a couple of things that we wanted to cover this week. Um, you know, I, I think the, the biggest news story was just around CFTC action against Binance. Um, we're going to dive into a little bit um, you know more about some of the CFTC's claims and their complaint that they filed, um, and then we're going to talk a bit about NFTs. Um, it seems like we, you know, at least 
talk a little bit about NFTs every week, um, and you know, a project that um, Ticketmaster is working on, and kind of what that means for ticketing and um, you know, virtual credentials and things like that. So, um, before we jump into that, do you want to talk a little bit about what you tried last week? Yeah, sure. So, so typically, I talk about protocols which are more easily accessible, which a lot of people can try and use. But today I want to be true to myself and I want to go to my OG uh, DeFi DGen audience. Right? So the protocol that I'm going to talk about is specifically catered for DeFi DGENs. Can you, can you just explain to the audience for those who, who may not know what DeFi DGen really means? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, so DeFi DGen obviously does not have a formal definition. Uh, so right now, the word DeFi DGEN is just thrown around casually where people who are just depositing liquidity on Uniswap or Uniswap-like protocols, they call themselves DGENs, but that's not the case. In, in part, DGEN is short for degenerative, right? That's correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so the, idea of, the idea of a true DeFi DGEN is someone who's really pushing the limits in terms of risk by using small projects. So not the mainstream big projects, but really small. And these are people who fully know the risk that they're getting into. They have a chance of losing their deposit, but they just like to use these protocols. So that's the true audience of DeFi DGENs, uh, which is basically pushing the limits of risk. And so with that disclaimer, uh, what I tried last week, and I've been trying this for a couple of months now, uh, is this protocol called DGEN Score. So the idea of DGEN Score is that it does a wallet analysis based on your transactions. So if I have interacted with a lot of small projects, uh, I'm going to get a DGEN score based on how many transactions I've done in the past. And then based on that, I get to test, I get to beta test new opportunities that are coming up. So if I, if, if I see a new small project which hasn't hit the market yet, if I have a good DGEN score, I automatically get access to that, to that project. And that's done by giving a soul-bound token. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So, so we've talked about soul-bound tokens. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so the idea of DGEN score is uh, a. It does an analysis of your transactions, all the uh, all the interactions you've had with smaller projects, and it's almost like an on-chain reputation per se, but in an anonymous way. And if you have interacted with a lot of small projects, you get access to these new projects, which are uh, basically hitting the market uh, before. Uh, everyone else, and that's that's the DGEN score. So, did you get a score? Yeah, I'm not gonna tell because that's that's essentially going to uh, dox me. But uh, it's a you don't have a lot of people working on it. But typically, you can actually bundle a lot of wallets, uh, and you can show, hey, these are the projects that I've interacted with. But it's not it's not any of the projects we probably talk about. A couple of questions on this. So, I'm assuming you have to. Provide all of the wallets that you're working that you're working out of for this, right? So, like Red Alert from a security perspective. Absolutely. Right? So, so the whole idea of being a DeFi DGen is that uh, again, there are going to be a lot of red flags, and that's why you have different wallets for different purposes. Uh, the wallet that I use on DGen Score is not going to have most of my wealth. It's mostly for uh, doing these kind of experiments, right? But uh, you're right. It, that's a red flag. But it's also establishing an on-chain reputation. Uh, of all the projects that I've worked, because then they know what projects I've, I've kind of touched. Yeah, we've we talked a lot about this with the kind of digital identifiers research that we did, you know, a while back, right? In terms yeah. of like thinking about you know different types of scoring, um, how you think about your your kind of you know 
digital presence, digital footprint. Not necessarily from the DeFi DGen perspective, <laughs> but, not, but more broadly, like... I see the intersection is, you're really talking about reputation. Reputation can be displayed in forms of credentials. So this would be interesting if they were actually issuing credentials that could be verified back to the issuer um, about the status of, of those different wallets. Now, the other thing is you have to prove that you actually control that wallet, so you'd have to sign a transaction so that you, you do actually have that credential. But it's pretty interesting. I, I'm glad you asked the question about which wallets, because I, I was wondering, do you bundle? But I'm, I'm sitting here and thinking about Parth. At what point might you introduce zero-knowledge proofs <laughs> so that you can still get your score but not disclose your wallet addresses? Is that on the roadmap? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like at this point we can do zero-knowledge on pretty much everything in the world. But uh, uh, I think the whole idea of the DGEN score is that it's catered towards a very specific audience, people who kind of embrace red flags, so someone like me who actually likes going into these, these mines and, and really figuring out what, what protocols I like. And so most of these projects are really small. Uh, and again, I, I do want to say that the, the last week I tried protocols I talk about typically are more accessible, but this one is really meant for a, a specific audience, which is more, um, which, which has a much, much higher risk tolerance. I mean, we're all in cryptos. We, we obviously have a high risk tolerance, but someone who's really pushing the limits. No, I think it's interesting. And it's a cool utility. I think, you know, to your point, you're, you're really out, you know, when you think about kind of the mainstream applications, you're really on the fringes with this, like way out there, right? <laughs> and there's a lot of risk associated with it. I but like I mean, how Jason used to say it's the it's the wild west. It's yeah, it's like the far west. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think about it. It's like all of us here, you know, we work on things, we, we build things, and what you want is feedback. So I yeah. think it's a really interesting application to have it out and an incentive form, to try and yeah. solicit that feedback. All right. Um, so let, I think we should just jump in. Um, so obviously, the biggest one of the biggest stories last week was just again the the CFTC, um, you know, suit against Binance. Um, Jack, do you want to kind of just take us through what the CFTC is saying um, and what we think, kind of maybe at a high level, some of the implications, maybe? Yeah, definitely. And ever since, like, particularly in November when FTX collapsed, and you had a number of sort of the other lenders in the space. Uh, closed shop, we've seen various things come out, and we've been talking about it pretty nonstop every couple of weeks. There's an item around Binance, whether it be the Binance smart chain pegged assets, and there are reports that maybe those assets aren't fully pegged, or the NYDFS and the SEC sort of mandating the shutdown of, of BUSD, the stablecoin that Binance issues in conjunction with Paxos. Now, you know, Signet and Sen from these crypto-friendly banks no longer exist. And so we've seen issues where Binance has trouble sending USDC stablecoins off-platform over the weekends, right? There was one weekend a few weeks ago where people couldn't get access to their dollars off-platform because they weren't able to, I think, send the wires for the money at that time. But regardless, there's just a lot of different things. And, and we've sort of used the phrase of like, where there's smoke, there can often be fire. Um, and then this this civil suit from the CFTC sort of has a number of allegations that could potentially point to fire. <laughs> um, and so maybe I'll just highlight a few of them. It's a 74-page document that was filed. Uh, to me, there's like three big things that stand out. 
Uh, one is you have to ask about jurisdiction, right? Remember, Binance is an international entity. They do have Binance US, but this was in particular uh, with regard to the Binance international business, which has the, you know, the, the derivatives and does the, the majority of crypto trading uh, across the globe. Uh, but there's allegations that U.S. customers uh, are knowingly accessing Binance International. Uh, and so there were like quotes from this report talking about this phased approach to increase its U.S. presence despite publicly stating its purported intent to block or restrict customers. There's discussion of institutional customers in the U.S. Uh, re- referred to as VIP customers. Um, and there were there were documents from Binance that even basically acknowledged that a portion of their derivatives transactions, you know, 16% in the month that they quoted, uh, came from people or customers that they identified as being located in the U.S. And so that's like the the big first piece that stood out was there is some element of jurisdiction if U.S. people are accessing, you know, basically securities or. Uh, you know, trade the ability to trade off on this platform that's not regulated by U.S. entities. So I do want to. So just on that point, I just, I do want to add that before 2020, when we all had Binance.com, even in the U.S., close to 20% of the volume was done by U.S. traders, right? And then close to 2020, or probably October 2019, is when Binance.us was launched. So in the CFTC report. What they are trying to say is that if you're a normal user, you still you get redirected to Binance.us. But if you are a high net worth individual, if you have a lot of these VIP points, they kind of tell you to use Binance.com uh, so that you can keep those VIP points. You can start, you can do similar transactions as you've been doing in the past. Uh, and then uh, what, what I thought was really interesting was even them suggesting how to use an, a VPN. So like, sure, you're in the US, but well, here's a VPN, wink, wink, like try getting to, to a place where most of the bigger players are, which is Binance.com. Yeah. yeah. And for people that don't know, Parth, why would somebody want to use Binance.com versus being directed to Binance US? It's, it's a night and day difference. Like it's just a number of features that you have, the idea of keeping those VIP points uh, or, or just the, the rates that you get the um, faster API access that you get. There are a lot of things. There are, there are huge differences between Binance.us versus Binance.com. In, in part, when you think about liquidity, is there just more volume, therefore more liquidity on Binance versus Binance.us? Uh, yes. So Binance.com uh, before 2020 was just, so 20% of the volume was in the US, but the, you still have the 80%, which is outside of US. So if you're a trader who does not care about jurisdiction, you would want to be on Binance.com because that's where you have most of the liquidity. I don't think I had an appreciation for you know how established the client base was in the United States before they kind of split the two businesses apart. So even when you do Binance.us, right? So someone in the US trying for Binance.com should automatically be IP blocked, right? So if you can see where the, that IP is originating from, which is in the US, and so in the CFTC report, they basically said that you would see a pop-up box when you open Binance.com, but like wink, wink, just like X out the box, and then, and then you get access to Binance.com again. Yeah. So like you were not, you were never truly IP blocked. Like you just had to cross out that pop-up box. Notified, but there wasn't a control in place that would prevent it. Is yes, that exactly. Interesting. To your point, there were, you know, there was this, this ability previously to access Binance.com. Then the regulatory environment started to shift. Binance US was sort of born. And then to your point, like 
there were still pieces left behind of like U.S. customers. Uh, and in this document, it's clear that the CFTC is alleging that CZ and Binance clearly knew that there was a meaningful portion of their revenue coming from U.S. customers. Different than that, I, I was reading, and then I heard this on a, another um, another podcast. They were talking about there were large traders who were trading on Binance, uh, not Binance US, but Binance.com, and they themselves might have end beneficial customers who might have been U.S. entities. Mm-hmm. But you know, the question is, would they have the obligation, or is Binance as the execution facility, to know the customer? So there's some some questions that are being discussed out on uh, different media sites about really to whom is the obligation of preventing the U.S. entity from trading on Binance? Yeah, I, w- I want to talk more about what's in the document. It almost seems like they took compliance as a joke. Basically, based on the chat conversations they had, they also spoke about Hamas and them laundering 600 bucks on Binance.com, right? So you know for a fact that if they are contributing $600 on the platform, like that's not going to be a huge business for Binance and they could have easily avoided that. But they clearly have the the controls in place to know that these transactions are happening if they're talking about them internally. So like, I think in some cases they truly don't have the controls, so they really don't know what actually is happening on the platform. But it, based on kind of them know, the, the comments around them knowing the, the portion of the business that's still based in the United States and like transactions as small as $600, right, that um, are, can be traced back to a particular organization. Like there's one thing just not knowing, right, but there's another thing knowing and then, you know, intentionally choosing to basically turn a blind eye to that activity, right? And I, maybe those things aren't treated differently under the law, but I think in the, in the court of public opinion, they might be, right, um, in terms of how we think about these things. Yeah, to your point, and this is with regard to what Parth was saying. So this was one of the, the other points that it, you know, we've now brought up is around money laundering uh, and, and knowingly you know, laundering money, which the CFTC says regarding Hamas transactions on Binance, um, someone who they're naming, explained to a colleague that terrorists usually send, quote, small sums as large sums constitute money laundering. Uh, you know, Later, there's a reply, you can barely buy an AK-47 with 600 bucks. And with regard to certain Binance customers, including customers from Russia, Lim acknowledged in a February 2020 chat, like, come on, they're here for crime. And their money laundering reporting officer agreed, saying, quote, we see the bad, but we close two eyes. It is definitely tough to read, and you have to question, is it joking or is it part of the culture? And I think the fact that it's, I mean, doc- it's documented, yeah. that's really, uh, really going to be a challenge for, for Binance. And, the, and then sort of the last uh, thing I'd mention, and there's a ton in this report, but the last one was around uh, market manipulation. So they, you know, there's a quote in here talking about basically more than 300 quote house accounts is is what the CFTC refers to owned by CZ and affiliated trading firms that were used in proprietary trading, and they noted that there appear to be no reasonable anti-fraud or anti-manipulation steps. And so this is like it kind of brings you back to the whole discussion around Alameda and FTX, where there's a trading entity that's trading on platform and. Again, we don't know this for a fact around Binance, I want to be clear, and this is all you know, the CFTC alleging, but you know, in, in that instance, it appears that Alameda knew what, would, you know, what trades were being made on FTX, and then they were able to trade against people. That kind of sounds similar to what's being discussed here around Binance, which, to be honest, is, is it that surprising? I don't think it's that surprising to hear it. 
No, right. and, I, and I think, again, you know, we've had a lot of discussion around the applicability of existing laws in the crypto space. And you know, I think there's a reference we were talking earlier to Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I think one other asset being viewed as commodities in this context, right? And so I think like the, the idea that you need to maintain some level of separation between the trading arm and other parts of the organization is a very well-established principle in traditional finance, right? And so I think like this maybe is an indicator that they're thinking about, again, using existing laws and regulations to to govern this space. I don't know. Yeah. And I, well, I think what you have to do is sort of put it back in the context was said earlier. It's about jurisdiction. Yeah. So clearly with a, a Binance U.S. environment, U.S. regulars have jurisdiction. When you're talking about U.S. entities being affected by um, perhaps poor controls or intentional um, counter-trading, you, you have to ask, you know, do you have the standing in order to bring this? And clearly the CFTC believes that they do have the standing, they do have the authority. They're, they're not going to bring charges against an entity without the belief that this is a winnable case. But let's talk for a minute, but what does winning the case actually mean? Yeah. Right. So it's not that um, Binance, anyone from Binance might end up in jail as a result of the CFTC case. It's likely that it would end in some type of penalty. Uh, and I know there were some colorful uh, messages back and forth between some of the folks um, at, at Binance on this. But I, I then think about what could be done. Well, they may not be able to transact in the U.S. Well, you that's, know, their exchange yeah. could be essentially prevented from doing business in the U.S. Uh, so that's a Practically speaking, right? Like, so FTX is now gone, right? I mean, people technically were never supposed to be, or maybe not never, but recently not supposed to be transacting on Binance, but you have Binance US. Like, are there implications for Binance US? And then I guess the question really is, is where does that volume go, right? I mean, the, the, the field is getting thinner and thinner in terms of providers now for US customers. That, that actually is a really good point, because one thing which I noted that as soon as the Binance story broke out, you saw close to $1.08 billion of outflows from Binance, right? And so typically when we have seen these kind of scenarios in the past, you have one exchange which has a lot of outflows and you have other exchanges which kind of benefit to these kind of stories and you have a lot of inflows here. However, this was the first time which I saw something which is so weird here that you saw close to 1 billion of outflows on Binance, but at the same time you saw outflows on Coinbase, on Kraken, which were close to half a million. So I don't know where the liquidity is going. Either people have just said, you know what, I'm done and dusted with crypto, like that's it. Or uh, people are just moving to self-custodial wallets, or it's a combination of both. But this was a really interesting observation, which I think is, is worth talking about. Yeah, it's probably a, a degree of both. But I think certainly after what we've seen in the past year, um, and also keep in mind, this was falling shortly after some of the, uh, some of the, the banks in the U.S. have you know, been disrupted in terms of their, their daily operations, there may be more people who are thinking about taking possession of their own assets in order to prevent against uh, in dependency on intermediaries that are they're experiencing challenges. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's likely eventually where this goes, right? Right. So, so not to put you on the spot, Jason, but I do want to talk about n not just finance, but also CFTC. Is this about sending a message? Because in the past, you've seen a lot of these regulators in individual countries outside of the US take pot shots at Binance and talk about like, hey, you don't have a valid license, what's going on, stuff like that. But here you see a full-blown report by the CFTC 
And then you also see in the document CFTC stating that ETH, Bitcoin, Litecoin, USDC, they're all commodities, which is obviously a contradiction to what the SEC has said in the past. Is this about sending a message? Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's about sending a message, but I do think that's a very important point that you just highlighted. With the CFTC bringing this case forward, what they're doing is they're, they're essentially going to the, the entities, the court system, which is where there will be decisions about whether or not these assets are securities or commodities. So essentially, if a decision is made, and let's say for argument's sake, uh, a, a judge agrees that these are commodities. Well, with whatever uh, jurisdiction that judge has ruled, that will be the case law, I believe. And then there could be a different case and it could be a different uh, outcome in a different jurisdiction. So there may be different processes where you go up through an appellate court, maybe someday it gets to the Supreme Court, and then ultimately the courts will decide on the classification. But I, I do think the CFTC bringing this court does give them, um, I'll, I'll call it, um, a leg to stand on in making that argument. Uh, who knows what the, the judge will ultimately rule? But they are certainly planting a flag, proverbially, up in terms of these are commodities. Yeah. And that's sort of the roundabout way that you can get answers if you don't have Congress making those decisions. Well, that's right? what I'm saying. Right. Like, Essentially, it's, like it's an attempt to use on... the existing framework to maintain order or regain order. Well, I, I, you know, candidly, this goes back to the earlier uh, discussion talking about what it was like uh, speaking to people over in the EU about this. And yeah. They don't have multiple regulators in the same way that we do, so they're like, what's going on? And the answer is, well, we, we're told that there are rules, the rules are in place. We know those rules. We try to comply with those rules. But it's oftentimes a square peg in a round hole, and you're left with assumptions. And what I have, what I said over there in a different context is sometimes people lead with assumptions and they end up with regrets. Yeah. So you know, if we can get clarity, even if it comes to the court system as opposed to Congress, I think that'll give people more, uh, more incentive to operate within the defined boundaries. Yeah, I would say, and obviously th I, this is like my sort of last statement on Binance, but I feel like needless to say, just the fact that we, we've seen the Congress really go after foreign organizations like TikTok, Right, And so just the fact that now you have another foreign organization which is flouting rules left and right, uh, I think the public opinion of Binance is 100% going to change in the next uh, two to three weeks. And it may possibly, again, it's my opinion, may possibly uh, lead to a lot of li uh, liquidity exiting the platform. And it'll find somewhere else to go. Um, well, we've talked about this one a lot. Should we uh, yeah, switch gears? Yeah, you want to switch gears to something completely different? <laughs> you, something you said, though, reminded me of this. You're, you're talking about digital communications living in perpetuity. You know, I think you know one of the things that I was kind of joking about, we were joking about earlier, is like, will my Taylor Swift ticket live in perpetuity move now that Ticketmaster <laughs> is doing this? And like, is there like some sort of digital collectible that can be gleaned from this? Um, so, so, Parth, uh, do you want to just take us through what Ticketmaster is doing and kind of what we think some of the implications? Are. And I just have to say, Parth, before you go there, Ryan, uh, in, a, in a bygone day, your proof was your physical ticket stub well, with the date and everything else. And people frame no. them. You had like collections of them. So uh, every time I, I get a new phone, I get very nervous because I have all of my boarding passes in my wallet on my phone, and one of the, and I like to like hoard them. Um, <laughs> and then one time I got a new phone, I lost on my boarding pass. They're like digital collectibles. Yeah, yeah. But there's so, no token, no blockchain token. It, to it, it. Can't recover it with a I, There's no key recovery. Yeah, <laughs> under my Apple Wallet, I guess. So far, they didn't mean to disrupt it, but I, I just laugh because. 
Um, yeah, I've, I've still got some tickets from events from uh, really that's my like, like physical tickets, physical tickets. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Well, I feel like with how much you have to pay sometimes, and we could maybe talk about that. Um, you should get a physical ticket in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's let's go to Ticketmaster because I, I have a personal story there. So the story is that Ticketmaster recently announced that they're going to roll out NFT gated ticket sales uh, for this band called Avenged Sevenfold, uh, A7X. And so if you had this NFT, which was given out by this, this, uh, these specific artists, all you had to do on Ticketmaster was go to the website, connect your wallet, and that's it. You front run all the other millions of people who are trying to get tickets. So my personal experience is that Taylor Swift is performing on May 19th and May 20th. And so I, I wanted to gift uh, tickets to my fiance and, and her friends. And it's just that those tickets, I mean, you had to wait for close to 47 to 50 minutes on the website because the website would freeze. And, uh, and and some of those tickets were actually going for, for like probably close to $1,200, like four digit numbers. And so the so as of now, a lot of, there are a bunch of problems in the ticketing system, right? So you have this concept of scalpers. So scalpers are basically people who actually put out bots. So as soon as uh, uh, the ticket hits the internet, you have a lot of these bots which buy these tickets and then they resale at at like horrible prices. So the idea of Ticketmaster here was that if you are a hardcore fan, so if you've paid to buy an NFT uh, for Avenged Sevenfold, which was close to 100 bucks, 150 bucks, if you're a hardcore fan, you can you don't have to go in the process of being in this queue along with a lot of these other thousands of customers on Ticketmaster. All you have to do is connect your wallet, confirm that you do own the NFTs, and then you can simply buy the tickets. It's as simple as that. Uh, so that's the that's the TLDR of what what Ticketmaster has done, uh, and the question is that am I just getting am I just front running others by getting this NFT? And the answer is no, because a you also get access to first listens. So in case the band comes out with something new, people who own that NFT they get access to that music first, and the eventual goal of this band specifically, which has embraced NFTs is to also give some sort of royalties to their hardcore fans. That's their sort of end vision. So I think it's, this is like one of those places where we don't talk about NFTs a lot, but it's it's like slowly seeping in, right? Well, you're basically creating a, a digital token version of being in a fan club and getting those early access because it's not just explicit to uh, the NFT. What I think is really interesting and novel is now you're actually linking a wallet to the NFT. And is that the step towards getting your ticket issued as an NFT? And I don't know if you guys have been to any uh, events recently where tickets are only digital, which in my mind, it's essentially an NFT. We just don't call it that. <laughs> we call it a digital ticket. And you show up and you scan your QR code and you get in or you don't. Yeah. Um, and you can still transfer. So, um, yeah, it's yeah interesting. I, I think we've, we've we, like, particularly in gaming, we've spent a lot of time talking about like token gated communities, right? And I think like some of the most vibrant communities in the world are, you know, the fan bases of certain bands and artists. And so this application certainly makes sense. And I think it kind of gets back to, like, the idea that the people in the audience are the biggest fans, right? And not the people who can pay the most money um, or, or, you know, whatever kind of economic um, incentive structure you have in place for these tickets. Um, so I think it's, it's really neat. It's good utility, and it goes beyond even ticket sales, to your point, right? Like, you kind of... It helps kind of make these online communities more intimate. No offense to uh, to Ticketmaster, but it's quite frustrating buying tickets uh, when you you know the, it's it's kind of similar to like when you're 
uh, renting a, you know, an Airbnb or a Verbo or whatever, and they don't tell yeah. you the cleaning fees ahead of time. It's, it's the same thing with, uh, with the expenses, and it doesn't sound like that's really what's being solved here. So I'll be interested when NFTs allow me to buy directly from the band or whatever issued. So well, and the, and the royalties these, that go back to the, the artist as well. Yeah. I think this has the potential to disrupt that. Yeah. Just disintermediate yeah. a lot of you gatekeepers. Could. The, the, you ticketing, could. the ticketing industry from someone who recently bought a lot of tickets is, is horrible because you pay for the price of tickets, then there's a venue fee, admin fee, yeah. ABC yeah. fee. Goes just, I just, just, just have a button that says, give me the all-in cost because that's what you really care yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that some of our grievances on tickets are not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs> the, the world kind of wants to know. Parth, did you get the tickets you were looking for? No, I did not. <laughs> they're like they're like legit twelve hundred bucks per ticket. Yeah, and they were originally over. for like one fifty. So yeah. I'm not gonna. I mean, I love my fiance, but like that's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> that could be wedding. Something for the wedding. Yeah, you can do better things with that. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys. I think that's uh, that's all we had for today. Um, I'm glad we were able to do this in person. We're gonna try try doing it more frequently. Hopefully, um, we'll talk to you all next week. Have a good rest of your week. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.